Well, the blessings uh, of technology. I didn't have much time, but I checked my phone very briefly, and I saw one text of a person that said, really enjoyed it. Leave the dolphins out of this. <laughs> so, anyway. You know, one question was my fault. I actually made a mistake, and it is important, so I'm going to read the first part of the question. I didn't because the, the second part of the question was sort of self-contained, and, uh, and yet realizing now the first part of the question, uh, I regret that I didn't read it first. So the first part of the question was, can I be a follower of Jesus but have a low view of Scripture? That is, can I believe the Bible is not the Word of God but still be a Christ follower? Jesus I like, but the Bible being the inerrant Word of God seems a bit ridiculous. A literal Adam and Eve, a literal flood, Jonah in the belly of the whale, and so on. That seems far-fetched. So I, I did not read the first half of the question. I didn't do it intentionally. Just when I got the question like that, the second half of it seemed to be uh, a question in and of itself. A follower, well, I would say at a minimum, that's a very inconsistent viewpoint. At the very least, that's an inconsistent viewpoint. If you want to, and you would have to define what one means by being a follower of Jesus. If you believe that Jesus Christ was indeed the Son of God and who he said he, he is and want to be a follower of him, then you would want to have the same view of Scripture that he had, which was not a low view of Scripture but a very high view of Scripture. How one could ever profess to believe the Bible is not the Word of God. Now, I touched on this briefly. I wouldn't expect you to have picked up on it necessarily, but it really falls again under the subject of inerrancy and infallibility. Uh, and what I mean by that is there are those that claim to believe that this is the Word of God, but only in certain sections, only in certain portions. Some people believe it's only the Word of God when it speaks on the area of salvation, that it's accurate in that, but when it talks about science or when it talks about miracles and all of that, it isn't accurate. I, I addressed that briefly yesterday by saying, who then decides which parts are the Word of God and which parts are not. That leads us into a hopeless morass of, uh, you know, of, of subjectivity, you see. So you say this part's the word of God, but that part's not. You then sit in authority over the word of God. You become a higher authority than the word of God, you see. So rather than the word of God judging you, you become the judge of the scripture. Um, just taking the parts that to you are palatable and rejecting the others. That's not the view that the Lord Jesus had. And so you say, say you like Jesus, but you don't like those parts that to you might seem ridiculous. We are confronted again with the clear and unmistakable fact that these are the things that the Lord Jesus believed and taught and communicated to his followers. So I would leave a person like that with that sort of choice. You say you're a follower of Jesus. Many people do. And what do you mean by that? Do you follow him and what his view of the word of God was? And if you do, you'll take these things just as literally as he did. I don't have any idea that the Lord was somehow trying to trick us as if to say, you know there was a Jonah in the whale, wink, wink. I don't really believe that, but it's just a nice moral story or something like that. He taught them as being factual things. He based teachings upon them. Let's take the one of Jonah and the whale for a moment. In what context did the Lord 
talk about Jonah. There are a couple of contexts that of context that I can remember, but one in particular where he said, as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the whale, what sign will you show us? Well, I'll only give you this sign. As Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the whale or the great fish, um, even so must the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the very heart of the earth. You see, it, it, he was speaking of his, his death, burial, and resurrection. Were those literal? Well, they were literal. Was that the time span he was there? Yes, it was. So why would he use some fictitious fable, if it were that, to refer to such a significant event? Why would he tie uh, an, an incredulous uh, fable to something as significant as his own re- burial and resurrection? You see, he wouldn't use something that was a myth, would he, to link with something that was so objectively true and so critically and crucially important as his own resurrection from the dead? At least that doesn't seem to make any sense to me. So that's where the picking and choosing gets one in trouble. And I don't mind mentioning the name. People who are quite popular in certain circles, like a Rob Bell and and that strain of folks. Which, by the way, you know, Rob Bell would have been at one time very involved uh, in what was known as uh, the emergent church, which not only emerged but fizzled it made an impact in a sorts, but it was supposed to be the next up-and-coming thing, as always up-and-coming things are supposed to be. I don't want to get too far out in the weeds on that, but it really did fizzle. You hardly hear anything more about it. But sometimes, even though you don't hear about it, people who are influential and write books and can be at the forefront of certain Christian thinking. Um, what was the movie that came out fairly recently? Was it Blue Like Jazz? Was that the movie within the past few years? Same sort of kind of mindset and thinking. A lot of young people see those kind of things and influenced by those kind of things. So be aware of that. Just because someone says they're a follower of Christ, what do they mean by that? Do they give the high regard to the high place to the word of God that the Lord Jesus did? Are you going to talk about John 1.1? Well, I am now. <laughs> so I will talk about John 1.1. 1, 1. Now, one of the problems with questions is you're not always 100% sure what a person is asking, but are you going to talk about John 1.1? 1, 1? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. I will talk about it in this sense, that as that is quoted right there, I, I think perhaps the person who asked the question was uh, maybe getting at a little bit the... Um, similarity between the written word of God and the person of the Son of God, also known as the Word. Now, that's an interesting uh, translation we have here from what we would know as the word logos, or logos as you might see. You may not know the Greek word logos or logos, but you would know the word logo. A logo is is something. I told a fellow... I don't get in those places much because there aren't many of them around. One of the big disappointments in life to me is that there are not many Apple stores anywhere. Um, Apple had, this is not a promotional thing, Apple had one of the great policies on their phones. They may still have it, an Apple Care policy. You could get your phone replaced. I dunked mine in the water one time and, uh, you know, got it replaced. 
uh, no big deal if you can find an Apple store. I mean, they're scarce, you know. Anyway, I say all that to say that the Apple store that I found, when I walked in, there was all this younger set of folks in there, most of them much younger than me. But I said, you know what's unique about your store in this big, gigantic complex of stores where you're at? He goes, what? I said, I'll tell you what's unique about it. You know, you don't have any words out there. What do you mean? You don't need any. You know what they have? They've got that symbol, don't they? Don't need any words. Now, that's what I call effective advertising. You don't even have to have any words. They just have the logo. You see that logo? You know, that's an Apple store, right? And so logos are made to convey ideas, concepts, and so on. The Son of God came into the world to express. It says in this very chapter, chapter 1 of John's Gospel, in verse 18, the only begotten, no man has seen God at any time, the only begotten Son, which is in the bosom of the Father, he hath declared him. He hath, we would use a word in Bible study uh, and preaching, uh, exegesis, to bring out of the text what's there. Uh, the Lord has exegeted. He has declared him. He's brought him out into the open for us to see. He is the logos of God, the concept, the thoughts. All that God is is conveyed in the person of the Son of God, you see. And, and of course, there is a close similarity between that and the written word of God, isn't there? And I mentioned that only in this sense in passing a bit yesterday, maybe not so much in passing, of special revelation and the two primary forms of special revelation as opposed to general revelation, that is the written word of God and the incarnation of the person of the Son of God. Uh, in the beginning was the word, the word was with God. And the word was God. I'll never forget listening to John Lennox. Many of you be familiar with Professor Lennox, some of his writings, and you listen to him and, and whatnot. Heard him debate some of the biggest uh, named evolutionists of our day. Um, but anyway, John Lennox was talking about one of the men that he knew who was a Nobel Prize winner in a field of science. And, of course, John, as brilliant as John is in his field, uh, his primary heart one thing I've always appreciated about John Lennox, I remember stories he told us years ago about him before the Iron Curtain came down, going into former Czechoslovakia and countries like that in his little Volkswagen to preach the gospel. You know, And so I've always appreciated a man who functioned intellectually at the level that he did, but his real heart was the heart of an evangelist to take the word of God in places like that. But John was trying to communicate to this professor uh, the concept of of how God communicated truth, even in the beginning and so on. And, and what finally got him was when he started talking about bits, information, words, and it clicked. And the guy got it from there. God in communicating, you see, as it's speaking things, information transmitted in bits or bytes or however we may say, you see. So... In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Hopefully that uh, may satisfy that question a bit. I've heard someone say once, I'd rather believe there is a God going to heaven and find out that there is a God than not believe and be on the wrong side. Uh, I think I agree with that, that statement in, in that sense. But once again, what we're looking at is uh, the fact that and I don't remember who brought this to me last night, but we were discussing it a little bit about, perhaps it was Malcolm today or last night, we were talking about the difference of just, I know this in my, because my heart tells me it's true. We have more than that, don't we? 
God has been pleased to give us objective truth found in the Word of God. God has been pleased to give us evidences, you see, and empirical evidence, things that we can observe, things that we can look at and examine. God has been very pleased to do that. The Lord Jesus was pleased to do that. And even in the transmission of his truth in places like the book of Genesis with creation and so on, um, as you begin to examine the, the, the text and you begin to examine the intricacies of the word of God, God has remarkably communicated these things to us so that we might have something objective that we may know. Let me just turn to one passage that's found in John's epistle, in John, uh, 1 John, in chapter 5. And this is very strong. John, as has often been called, he calls himself the disciple that Jesus loved, the beloved John, the one who writes about love, and so on. But he's very strong in 1 John in chapter 5. Verse 10, He that believeth on the Son of God hath the witness in himself, and he that believeth not, not God hath made him a liar. Why? Because he doesn't believe the record that God gave of his Son. And this is the record, that God hath given to us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He that hath the Son of Son has life, and he that hath not the Son of God hath not life. These things have I written unto you that believe on the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life, and that you might believe on the name of the Son of God. Notice how many times the record that God has given. These things have I written unto you. Not just that you might have some vague subjective feeling or thinking about. I want you to have something you can, you can stand on, you see, and what you can stand on is, I've written these things to you. Now back up for a moment, because in verse 9 he has preceded this by saying, If we receive the witness of men, the witness of God is greater. For this is the witness of God that he's testified of his son. And we receive the witness of men all the time. We take it for granted, don't we? How many of you have ever been to Siberia? Oh, no one has. Do you believe there's a Siberia? Oh, I do too. Why? The witness of men. Matter of fact, you believe the witness of men so strongly that if something were to call you to go to Siberia, you'd perhaps go online, Travelocity, a kayak, something, and, and you found a ticket to a place called Siberia, if there were such a thing, and you would actually spend your money and your time to go down to the airport, to, to get on a plane, to go somewhere you've never seen before. And maybe don't even know anybody from. Because you believe the witness of men. Is not the witness of God greater? God has given us a witness. Listen, I've had the privilege many times of giving my testimony. Standing before crowds of people, big and small, and giving my testimony. What if God were to stand before you now and give testimony that's what he's done. And we have the privilege that he's recorded it for. So John says, not only have I said these things that you might believe, I have written these things to you that you might believe, that you might know that you have eternal life and that this life is in God's Son. That's a powerful thing, isn't it? So I, I get the question, and yet we have more than that. We have the fact that God wrote these things for us. Uh, now, this is a question uh, somewhat on subject and somewhat not, but it is what it is.
Um, why does it seem that the, the there doesn't seem to be much offered from the New Testament pattern assemblies in the scholarly realm? Um, because we don't have scholars. No, <laughs> there is. I would say this: that of those that are seeking to follow the pattern of the New Testament as revealed in the Word of God, um, if you trace back over the history of Christianity, particularly in the uh, 19th century, 20th century, and even on a bit into the 21st, but particularly the the 19th, which would be the 1800s, the 1900s, and so on, some of the scholarly things that we base much of our works on today were done by men who were in what I believe is referred to New Testament practicing assemblies. Standard work still, which will lead into the next question. If you have questions on the canon of Scripture, one of the classic works is by a man named F.F. F. Bruce. If you do any research at all into manuscripts and evidence and, and things like that, F.F. F. Bruce will be referred to multiple times because F.F. F. Bruce was, a, one of the, is, was one of the best uh, known scholars, one of those scholarly men in the field of things that had to do with the New Testament. Um, you will also perhaps, even on your Bible app, sometimes run into the name W.E. Vine of Bath, England. And Vine's Expository Dictionary of New Testament Words, Vine's Dictionary of Old Testament Words, still standard reference tools that have been put into digital format now, but were done by men of great scholarly uh, repute. I mentioned uh, David Gooding, John Lennox, and their level of expertise men as well. So often I, I have noticed that you have men who uh, move in circles that are not big circles in and of themselves, uh, of in, but their, their sphere of influence far exceeds uh, the size of the groups that they're involved with. And they have affected Christianity as a whole for the good in the scholarly realm. Now, I, I say with that, I put one caveat with that, or one an additional thing to think about. Part of the problem is that the church as a whole, and perhaps those that we are most familiar with, and where we fellowship as individuals, have sometimes, unfortunately, adopted an attitude of anti-intellectualism. And that is to be lamented. You don't check your brains at the door the minute you become a Christian. We should give ourselves to the rigorous study of God's Word and the things that have to do with God's Word. And we can talk all we want about how you don't have to be super intelligent or highly educated to know the Word of God. That's absolutely true. And yet, our reliance upon those men who gave us the translations, I don't read Hebrew. I puddle around in Greek a little bit, can read the words, but I don't know Greek grammar and, and the parsing of verbs and so on like I should. Thankfully, there are men that did know, and I don't have to read my Bible in Latin, you see, because there were men like Tyndale and others who said, no, we need to put it in the language that the plowboy can understand. But if it wasn't for those highly educated men, and so sometimes we have uh, scoffed at the idea of those who are intellectual and uh, not embrace them as we perhaps should, and... We haven't always given ourselves to a venue, a platform where there was liberty to discuss and even contend about different things and different views that have to do with Scripture. 
um, difficult to do sometimes in the right setting and context. So perhaps we've shot ourselves in the foot a bit there. Now, if you'd like to come and contend with things about Scripture, sorry, ladies, but come to our men's Bible study at Camp Horizon in January, where we give ourselves to a full week of the study of a book. This year will be the book of Acts, and the first full week in January. And you can come for a day, a night, in the deep, or uh, you can come for the whole time. And we give ourselves, at least we try to give ourselves, to the serious study of the Word of God in the formal times and in the sidebar times, etc. Plenty of place for interaction. So, now, we don't get at it at the level of some of the scholars I've mentioned before, but at least we do try to seriously give ourselves to the study of Scripture. Um, so, there has been much, much offered. There could be more, but that takes people who are willing to go the route of getting the type of education that you would need to do such things. That's the best I can say about that. Could you please provide more detail on how uh, the canon was recognized? Um, yes, I can. Matter of fact, I think, did I bring, excuse me one second, I thought I had some, I thought I had them up here, I'm sure I do. Bear with me. Uno momento. How the canon was recognized. I mentioned before there are only nine writers of the New Testament books. That's very helpful because we didn't have 400 writers to have to figure out what they wrote and so on, I think. Um, uh, there was a value in the canon being declared a couple of hundred years after because by then it had circulated enough that the churches as a whole recognized certain books as canonical and others that were not. Um, by the time of the 4th century, there was almost universal acceptance and acknowledgement of which books were canonical. Basically, there were five tests that were used to determine which books were Scripture and which weren't. The first test was apostolicity. In other words, was this person an apostle or a close associate of an apostle? That was the first test. Suitability. Was it a book that was suitable uh, in the sense that it was designed to be suitable for the purposes of, of which it was written as far as things that had to do with salvation and the life of Christian folks, etc. Universality, was it widely accepted by the church at that time and recognized as the church as being a book of the Bible? The spiritual character of the book, was it a book that had a spiritual tone and character to it? Was there, in the fifth, was there evidence of inspiration by the Holy Spirit? Now, it's very interesting because, you see, um, one of the other things we find is that there wasn't, uh, just because there were con what was considered to be conflict of certain books, it didn't bias those people into recognizing them as the Word of God. Let me give you an example. Luther, bless his heart, he knows better now, but Luther said about the book of James, it is a right, strawy epistle an epistle of straw. Oh, that's quite a thing to say about the Word of God, isn't it? Luther said that because there was this perceived conflict between the doctrine of justification of faith as taught by Paul, and which Luther came to believe in and was saved, and what James taught, you see. And, and yet, that supposed conflict did not prevent those early folks from recognizing 
that both was the word of God, and that any conflict was probably in their own mind and thinking and understanding of those things, and they could be reconciled. And so that's, that's another thing. Uh, when it comes to the canon of Scripture and authority, uh, these things were considered to be God-breathed or inspired, chosen men, as we've seen, born by the Holy Spirit, accredited by those who first received them, and very important, we've touched on this, attested by the Lord Jesus when it came to those Old Testament books, particularly. Ones he didn't mention, those are apocryphal books. He didn't mention those. Received, delivered, and attested to by the prophets, and also used by the Holy Spirit. Now, along with that, I don't want to go long, I'm only going to mention it for the sake of the recording. There are a number of other things. Uh, that had to do with that, the power of the book. The enduring power of the book, had it been preserved in that sense. The imperial power, was it used of God, the power of God unto salvation. Sanctifying power of that book, John seventeen seventeen. Uh, re- the revealing power of those books, the wisdom of God the accuracy of those books on all it spoke about or predicted. Prevailing power, it will accomplish that which is sent forth, and the prophecy as well. Now, the church did not create the canon. The church recognized the books that were inspired. And I said already, very important to realize that our authority is not derived from the church, but from the scripture. That means it's derived from the Lord. So why did they have councils and synods and so on? As I said, three reasons. One, men like Marcion were already trying to start their own canon. So they wanted to correct those things that were heretical. The Eastern churches, number two, were using some of the spurious books, which they still do to this day. And in the year 303, the emperor Diocletian issued an edict that said all of the sacred books of the Christians were to be destroyed. And to put it mildly, nobody wanted to die for a fake. So if they were going to die for a book, they wanted to know that that book was indeed the word of God. And that's just one of the historical facts uh, that's used there. Um, To mention one of the men who was in some of those assemblies seeking to practice New Testament principles, F.F. Bruce, when at last the Synod of Hippo in A.D. 313 listed the 27 books of New Testament, it did not confer, confer upon them any authority which they did not already possess, but simply re- recorded their previously established canonicity. See? So the church didn't decide the canon of Scripture. Um, along with that is the testimony of a man named Irenaeus. Um, Irenaeus was lived about 80 to 180, so he lived just before the year 200 and so on, or up until that time. He was brought up at the feet of a man named Polycarp. Polycarp was a disciple of John. It provides us, in that sense, a direct link to the apostles. And the importance of that is in Irenaeus's writings, he attests uh, to the recognition of at least 20 books of the New Testament in his writings. And those books would be um, the four Gospels, Acts, Romans, 1st, 2nd Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, 1st and 2nd Thessalonians, 1st and 2nd Timothy, Titus, 1st Peter, 1st John, and the book of Revelation. 
So in his writings, and again, he was directly linked with Polycarp, and Polycarp was a disciple of John, so it provides a very unique early link. And in his writings, you'll find him mentioning or using 20 of the 27 books of the New Testament canon that we have. So that gives us a little bit about the, the decision of how the canon was formed. Thank you. Thanks for the opportunity and the venue. Tomorrow we will uh, continue. Pray for me that I can distill down uh, the voluminous thoughts that I have on this subject to what would be appropriate for tomorrow and those that are here. Some of you won't be here. I would uh, suggest not because it's me, but because of the nature of tomorrow's message that you may uh, want to get a copy however you might. My, my leaning right now is towards um, what does it matter? What does it matter? It's always a good question to ask in preaching even, isn't it, or in teaching. The question, what does it matter? And I think that's, that's what I'll do unless the Lord indicates somehow differently tomorrow. Thank you very much for your time, your patience, your encouragements, your critiques, your questions, your comments, your contributions. Let's uh, look to the Lord in a word of prayer. Father, we thank you. We thank you that we have talked about certain high things. We've talked about certain regular level things. Reminded again of how we began by looking at your word, which tells us that, Timothy, you've known from a child the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make you wise unto salvation. So that even the young ones are here can learn the great truth that Jesus loves me, this I know. Why? Because the Bible tells me so. And we can say it in the words of Scripture, this, the words of Paul himself, who wrote much of what we have in our New Testament. The Son of God loved me and gave himself for me. And oh, when we recognize that and place our faith in the Lord Jesus, that is salvation. Thank you for giving us your word. Thank you for giving us objective truth, something we can hold in our hands, study, read, memorize, refer to, check up on, examine, and learn to live by. We thank you again. And we give you thanks again in the name of the Lord Jesus. Amen.